0: Let's see how we get on with this passage, shall we? Um, <clears throat> there's some complicated stuff in here, and there's some very clear and wonderful and amazing stuff here, too. We're continuing our um, morning series on Galatians. If you could bring up the slide, that would be great, um, fantastic. Uh, we've seen um, this gospel. Paul is so passionate about a gospel from God, not from men, a gospel that changes lives, turns lives upside down, a gospel that levels the playing field, and this morning... Paul's making it so clear. This is a gospel of grace and not graft. Galatians two eleven to twenty one. Um, if you want to follow where I'll be going through this, as we start, I'm going to have to be quick. This is unbelievable. Seventeen minutes. I don't think I've ever preached for seventeen minutes. I don't know what to do. Um, oh, we'll see. We'll see how we get on. Uh, until the kids, until the kids come back in. That was exciting. Um, let me start by asking you. I want us to think approach this passage by first thinking about table manners. It may seem a bit strange, but table manners. Tell me, uh, what are the list of typical British table manners that you know about? Let's let's be quick on these. What are the ones that you were taught? Yeah. Eat with your mouth closed closed and don't speak with your mouth full. Yes, correct. Elbows Elbows in. What's this with elbows? You're right. There's something about elbows, isn't there? I have no idea why, but there's something about elbows. Elbows in, elbows off the table, hide your elbows, whatever you do. Don't get that one. Um, anyone else? Yeah. on. Say again? Yeah, naughty. Don't lick your knife. Thank you, Yvonne. <laughs> Won't be doing that when I come round for dinner, Yvonne. Don't worry, I'm there. Um, any more? They're very nice. Don't start until everybody's been served. These are table manners. Um, What else have I got here? Uh, Most of those, uh, no burping, clearly, at the table. No screechy, screechy on the plate. Now, you know what I mean. No screechy, screechy on the plate. That's horrible. Um, So what are table manners all about? Well, basically, why do we have them? They're all actually about a culture that we either set or we respect around the table. Many of them, we know why we do, like, don't eat with your mouth full, because it's literally disgusting. Um, Eat with your mouth full. (laughs) Yes, don't eat with your mouth full. Um, (laughs) It's hard not to. Um, Don't speak with your mouth full, or don't eat with your mouth open. That's right. Um, It's disgusting. Others, we don't really know what it's about. The elbow thing. Why is it so rude to show your elbows? You'd know about it. You lived in a family of eight children. That doesn't go down so well. Yeah, I got you. Thank you, Tony. Um, But these are our rules, our customs, that we've chosen as a nation or we've inherited. Um, And in other places, there's all sorts of different rules. Some uh, families say grace, of course. Some don't. Some wait for everyone to start, as Joe said. Others don't. Just muck in and get going when the food turns up. Um, Some have extremely formal service. Some situations Um, So for a very, very short time, for for less than a term, when I was first starting uh, my ministry training, I uh, studied at a college in Oxford. And the formality of their eating arrangements was extraordinary. And ours wasn't a very formal college. It was all about gowns, and it was all about a high table. It was all about separation between those on the high table in even bigger gowns. The better the gown, basically, the higher and more important you were. Um, The more senior you were, the longer the gown you got, as in what you were studying. Um, It was all that. And you were not allowed to start. You had to stand when the principal came in, who is a Baptist minister. And the principal comes in, you all stand like this. And he walks up, and then only when he sits down and, I think, says a prayer in Latin, I believe, a sentence of Latin, then you may begin. And when he's decided he's finished, he'll stand up. And you all have to stand up, and you're finished as well. It's unbelievable. Oh, he's done. Extraordinary. Now, I'm not against formality. I'm not against tradition, especially in beautiful academic Settings like that, I find it fascinating. But think about the culture that's set by our table manners. Think about what it actually says about our values, or what we value, or who we value, or who we consider important, what we consider important. In the early church, having a meal together was something We believe they did regularly. It's something spoken of in the New Testament. These love feasts or these community feasts where they gathered together a bit like us today. It's a very appropriate passage. We're having our barbecue later. Let's see what we learn. Um, But I wonder, what's the culture that's created when we come round the table together? What's the culture when we gather here in church on a Sunday morning or in our life groups? Because we will be, by our manners, table manners or not, or by our customs, by the way we are, setting a culture that speaks about our values. You see, in this passage, Paul is explaining to the Galatians about a meal that the church in Antioch was sharing together. But during this meal, something had gone badly wrong um, with the culture that had been created by the table manners of Peter, of all people, and other certain individuals. Indeed, this whole passage, believe it or not, is centred around trouble around the table. At first glimpse, table manners may not seem very important, but something that was happening here was of vital importance, actually. So much so that Paul starts this bit of his letter by saying, When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And that's actually a huge thing for Paul to have done. Peter was the great leader, if you like, of the early church. He was the one, Jesus had said on this rock, I will build my church. He was revered. It's a little bit like, it's not the same, but it's a little bit like the Queen. Um, and, and, and sort of standing up and having a go at Her Majesty, because of how she's acting around the dinner table. It was a big thing, so what's going on? It clearly was more than just using, I don't know, the wrong spoon for the soup. That's not what Paul's annoyed about. There's something vital here that has gone wrong. So let's back up to understand more. You see, the church in Antioch was actually one of the earliest uh, churches, and it was a Gentile church, formed soon after Pentecost and then the outbreak of persecution. This, this uh, uh, Gentile church, so non-Jewish uh, Christian church, uh, was, was, was born, if you like, and planted in Antioch. And it's the place that Barnabas was sent to be a leader of and it was a place that Barnabas went and got Paul out of his time away in his very early ministry to come and teach and lead with him. And actually, it was a place where the gospel began to make an impact in ways that nobody had actually expected in new and amazing ways. You see, around the table here, they developed a gospel Culture. Jewish and non Jewish Christians worshiped together. They shared together. They walked together as one. It was the principles of love and of fellowship that the brothers and sisters in Christ all sat down here in Antioch and ate and drank together. This new and beautiful culture they were living out. If you love Jesus, they basically said, and He is your Lord and Savior, then come and sit and eat and share fellowship. You're a brother. And actually, this is outrageous for some, because it broke with centuries and centuries of laws, customs, and traditions that had kept these two people groups apart. But they didn't do it that way in Antioch. It's not a surprise that it was in Antioch um, that the believers were first called Christians, those who followed the way of Jesus, his ways, distinctively, clearly, beautifully. Antioch was an outpost, if you like, a brand new expression of what might be possible when people learn to discover the love of God together as a family, like I was talking about earlier, and what that looks like. So when Peter visited them, he discovered this gospel culture, and he just mucked straight in. He got stuck in. He must have been so impacted by this visual picture of the kingdom, of all those who once were separated, eating together, fellowshipping together in the most amazing Way. But then something changed. Some others came in and things tragically changed. Some of the religious men who had previously criticised Peter for eating with Gentiles, those who hung out with James in Jerusalem, although James is, um, later says that, you know, I didn't send these people, but they were some powerful religious folks. They'd become Christians, or said they had, but they still well, they held on to the old laws and the old customs. They were probably once part of the Pharisaic movement there, and they brought that with them into their expression of following Jesus. But more than that, when they turned up to Antioch, they immediately began to teach and to um, literally separate themselves from the Gentiles. I've got a robe here Just going to use it as a symbol. Something changed. And this separation began. I'm afraid we are the ones that sit here now. And you're not welcome here now. We sit separately to the non circumcised, to the non Jewish Christian. We observe our rituals. And their action was hugely powerful. In fact, it was so powerful that Peter himself, it says, drew back from the Gentiles that he'd been sat with and eating with and celebrating with, with, from the family there. And he drew back, it's quite a powerful phrase, like we do from something in Disgust, we draw back. And he went to sit with these folks. And Paul says it was hypocrisy. Do you know what? And his... Doing that also meant that all the other Jewish Christians in Antioch did the same and sat on the good table and the clean table and the right table, of course, just like we do in Jerusalem. And even Barnabas, Paul tragically says, even Barnabas was drawn in by their behavior. And it's tragic, really, this amazing picture of the kingdom of God, where we all muck in together, we're all one, there is no separation anymore. That's been smashed apart by just a small number of people who came in and changed the culture by their religious behaviour and their religious table manners. Just think for a moment, I haven't got time to explain it in the way I was going to, but I want to just draw two really clear points from this. Don't underestimate how powerful the actions of others can be in your life. Um, Especially when they're in a group, especially when they seem powerful, or like they've got something sorted, or they're in some way doing something interesting, or new, or right, um, or seemingly right. Like Peter, we can observe their ways, and knowingly or unknowingly, we can become like a chameleon, and we too can change our colours to match theirs. And even though our convictions might have been otherwise before we know it, we've compromised to kind of squeeze in and fit in. And that could be at work, or at home, or in the gym, or at the pub, the school gates. And the second thing is don't underestimate how powerful your actions can be, actually. All of us, whether you realise it or not, have folks that will be looking up to us, or observing us, whether they realise it or not. And your actions, actually, um, can have a big impact on others, too, uh, the example use set. If you allow yourself to set an example or exude a culture of negativity and criticism, of gossip, of spitefulness, of bitterness, then it both influences others and it permissions others to do the same, doesn't it? But the same is true the other way round. Like Paul said to Timothy, um, let me quote his words. He said. Set an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and purity. It could be saying the other way around: When we stand up for Jesus, when we are sincere, when we take Him seriously, when we actually aren't embarrassed to talk about how good He is amongst our friends and our peers and wherever we might be, we can change the culture. Things change. And you know that's true. You'll know there are folks, certain folks that when they come to your house, it just feels different. They bring with them something of the Lord. We used to be the same with my grandma. She was a beautiful and lovely, godly lady. And when she came to stay, we just noticed conversations were more about God. Things were different. And She wasn't religious or proud. She just loved Jesus. Um, and it was beautiful. Okay, let's get a wriggle on, shall we? There's a lot in this passage, which I won't be able to cover but let's just say that Peter's actions were powerful and Paul stands up um, and he, he looks and he sees this separation. These two, these two groups now, these two tables at this supposed communion, this supposed meal together and he's having none of it. And he calls it hypocrisy and he stands up and he has a go at uh, Peter. He says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, literally not advancing in the right direction towards the ways of Jesus, I said to Peter, or Cephas, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see, Peter normally welcomed Gentiles. He was one of the ones who totally and utterly, by God's help, worked out that he was no longer to call any people group unclean or common. But actually, as the Lord filled them with the Holy Spirit, the Lord had shown him that this division has gone now. This division has gone. And Peter knew this, and he believed this. And I haven't got time to go through this, but what he would say with his mouth, which you could call his explicit theology, for those that like terms... What our mouths say, it did not in any way match up with his implicit theology. That is what his actions were saying. Do you understand the difference I'm making there? All of us have an explicit theology, what we know we believe and what we say. And then we also have an implicit theology, what our actions actually say we believe. What our actions actually say our priorities are and our values are. And Paul called him out on it. He said you're a hypocrite. Your actions, his actions were basically saying, well, I'd sell you off. For a better offer, guys, Um, you're excluded, you're not good enough. This is how God views you, you're unclean. Therefore, we need to be separated for religious reasons. And if you'd said that to Peter, he would say, I don't believe that, that's wrong. But your actions are saying that, Peter. We need to be aware of this in our lives and as a church. So his actions are um, betraying what he believed about separation, but it was more than that. It was actually something that went to the very heart of the gospel and how we realise that we are made right with God. The word is justified, being seen and declared as right and perfect before God and in his eyes. It was actually went right back to that part of the gospel um, because basically his actions were saying, well... It's okay to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow the law and get it right to actually be seen as right in God's eyes, to be declared as righteous or justified. And this is like a red rag to a bull for Paul. He's having absolutely none of it. None of it. Not even the Queen sat there doing that. He's, he's not having it. Not, 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 not even Peter, the great Peter. And he stands up and he absolutely goes for it. We who are Jews by... Birth and not sinful Gentiles. We know, Peter, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, he says. So we too, we put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified. Not by the works of the law, because we know that by the works of the law, no one is justified, he says. He's saying, are you kidding me, Peter? Are you kidding me? You and I know jolly well that we, even though we have this, so, this birthright as Jews... Even though we're circumcised and not sinful Gentiles, or Gentile dogs as they're considered by some at the time, we realise that we're only justified and made acceptable and right in the eyes of God by our faith in Jesus Christ and that faith he gave us anyway. Not one of us who became even close to being blameless and perfect in God's eyes. That's why we put our trust in Jesus. That's why you did Don't you dare now go back and say that, oh, that wasn't quite enough. You also have to follow the law perfectly. I think you could probably hear the silence in the room as Paul drums this point home to Peter. You can hear it shake the room again. This is a gospel of grace, not graft, Peter. And you know it. And Peter did. And we don't have time to go through it, but just think about Peter's story, honestly. Head of the church. This is the guy that was the dirty fisherman that couldn't care less that Jesus was just a few metres down the the beach. It took Jesus to come over him and say, come, come follow me. Okay, I will. It wasn't, did he deserve it? Not a chance. It was all the grace of Jesus. This was the Peter that really wanted to try hard but kept putting his foot in it over and over again, getting it wrong, causing an upset, insulting people, totally messing up. But Jesus stuck with him, loved him, kept going, believed in him. Did he deserve it? No, not a chance. It was grace. This is the Peter that said, I promise I will never deny you, Jesus. Three times, I don't know him, he said. But then Jesus, the risen Jesus, comes and restores him and says, do you know what, you, I'm going to make you the rock on which I build my church. Are you kidding me? Did he deserve it? No. It was the grace of Jesus. On his own, he didn't stand a chance. He had failed. And yet, right now, as he draws back from the Gentiles, he's doing the very same thing again. He's doing a Peter. He's getting it wrong. And he knows it. But he knows if he comes back now, he can change his actions. He can get back in line with Jesus and the grace and grace alone of the gospel. So Paul uh, continues his um, public uh, declaration, his final words to Peter. And I'm going to go through these really quickly because we're pretty much out of time. Um... They're some of the most tricky to translate, but they're also some of the most powerful and profound words in the whole of this letter. We could do a whole sermon on this, really. Perhaps we should another time. But first, Paul knocks down the outrageous arguments of the, uh, of the, of the Judaizers that says, well, if you're not following the law, that makes you a sinner. Therefore, probably Jesus is, like, promotes sin. And, and Paul's like, no, I'm not having that. I'm not having any of that. Do you think they're going to march in with like great gusto? It'd be great. I'll see if I can, I'll see if I can land this. Um, he says, no way. He said, if you want to really be a sinner, rebuild the old laws. Rebuild that structure of being proud. Rebuild that self reliance, that self righteousness. Then you'll prove that you're a sinner. That's what you need to do if you, if you want to prove yourself a sinner. Rebuild all the arrogance and the self reliance. But for me, Paul says, I have died to that way. I've been there. I've done it. And Paul had. Paul, I've got a little prop again. Paul literally had so much to be proud of in the eyes of men. Paul was without doubt one of the most impressive. And yes, this isn't impressive, but it's an image. He is one of the most uh, extraordinary um, religious, Pharisaic keepers of the law. But do you know what? The law only led him and his desperate attempt to follow. The Lord, and to prove himself worthy by his own efforts, only led him to darkness and brokenness and destruction. It led him to kill and hurt innocent folks, the very people that Jesus was saving. It had led him to nowhere. And so he says, do you know what? I have been crucified with Christ. That me, that old me, that proud, self-reliant, I can do it on my own. That has gone, that has gone on the cross With Jesus, I'm done with trying to prove to God that I'm worthy. I can't. I'm done with trying to prove to others that I'm worthy. I cannot. I'm not. I'm done with trying to prove to myself that I can be really religious and really good. I can't. I'm done with that. That me, that's gone. It's crucified with Christ. I'm having no more of it. How about you? Has it gone? Or do you keep digging it back up? Do you keep holding on to it? I've still got to prove myself good enough to be this Christian that I'm supposed to be. I old you is crucified with Jesus. He died in your place. Him and him alone. He took your mess. He fulfilled the law for you. He took judgment for you. He died in Paul's place. He died in your place. He died in my place. And him and him alone and trusting what he did on the cross is the only way The only way any of us can be declared as right and blemish-free and perfect in the eyes of God. And Paul says this, The life I now live, I live, uh, the the life I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself, gave himself, gave up everything for me. Paul's not dead, he's not gone The old way of thinking is now, through faith in Jesus, he is close to Jesus. And Jesus is his everything, his rock, his hope, his purpose, the reason he lives, his joy, his companion, and the one who has saved him and given him everything. Paul finishes with this fantastic phrase. I do not, therefore nullify the grace of God. I will not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness was available through any other way whatsoever, including the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died because it's impossible any other way. Don't try. Does that mean our actions don't matter? Gosh, they really matter. Our table manners matter. Why? Because in response, we want to be in line with this God of grace, this gospel of grace. We want to love as Jesus teaches us to. We want to include and support and encourage as Jesus teaches us to. So forgive as Jesus teaches us to. As each day we surrender to his lordship and not to mine. But does that earn me my salvation? Does that make me right in his eyes? Not a chance. Not even close. I do it out of love and out of obedience through his spirit in my heart changing me, changing you, changing us as a church each and every day. Let's sing our final song. We'll invite the kids in, but let me finish with these, if I invite the band, with these words of Paul. You'll hear both good works and grace here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Jesus Christ, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do.